I'm turning this evening to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2 and verse 1. Matthew, chapter 2, verse 1. Now, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and are come to worship him. And our subject is the search of the Magi, the wise men, as our King James translation puts it, the Magi. And first of all, a few words on who were they. And I'm sure you know something about them, but they were scholar, philosophers, and priests from old Chaldea or Persia that had come. The most distant of those places would be a thousand miles journey to Jerusalem. They were a very old uh, company of people, many of them in the Eastern world, and we read about them back in the Old Testament in the book of Daniel, going back to 600, 605 BC, where they were court advisors, a whole caste or core of them, many such people, many of them mystics. They had invented their own kind of religion. They were very accomplished astronomers and astrologers too. So what they had done is decided that the movements of the stars and heavenly bodies somehow influenced and governed events that took place on earth. So they moved their expertise in astronomy into a kind of religious dimension and read all sorts of things, as some do today, out of the stars. And uh, their religion, which sometimes was polytheistic, sometimes monotheistic, well, it was really uh, centred around that uh, uh, study. But there were many who were curious and who looked beyond the ideas of their own priestly caste. Why, they were probably influenced by many Jews that had been taken into captivity, into Babylon. And at court, there was Daniel, the prophet of God, and he was there, standing by the old faith that he had been brought up in, had a firm relationship with the one true and living God, teaching the Old Testament scriptures, no doubt, and prophesying. And there were many, I think, in that caste who would have been influenced by him and others like him, though Daniel was outstanding. And when, the, when Babylon fell and the Medo-Persian Empire took over from the Babylonian Empire, well, that same caste was active, the philosopher-priests of that region. And there, Daniel rose to be the virtual prime minister in the early years of the Medo-Persian rule. So his influence, no doubt, was very extensive. They had access to Jewish scriptures. They must have been fascinated 
many of those philosopher-priests at Daniel's prophecies as the years went by and the centuries passed. And that caste, that cult, if you like, that enormous sect of astronomer, philosopher, priests was still flourishing even at the time of Christ. Well, what did they think then of Daniel's prophecies? They esteemed him considerably. Why, before it had all happened, he had prophesied that the Medo-Persian Empire would overrun the Babylonian Empire, then would come the Empire of the Greeks and then of the Romans. He'd got it all. And though it was in symbolism, the symbolism was now understood because these things had happened historically. There must have been, among the curious, tremendous respect for that. So we're not surprised that there are some of these philosopher-priests from the East who've come to have a lot of, give a lot of attention to the Jewish Messiah. Who is he? What will he do? How will he work? Had they read the prophet Isaiah? I'm sure they had. Had they studied his prophecies and the Saviour's work and how he would bring about an atonement and pardon for sin? How versed were they in all these things? When suddenly all their musings and their thinking was interrupted by the appearance of this unusual star which they could not account for in any way as expert astronomers did it occur to them this is the son of righteousness who would arise this is his star something burst in upon all their thinking and their studies something that didn't fit in their scheme of things, interested in the movement of the heavenly bodies and how they affected events on earth, and it's all rudely interrupted by this miraculous star. And they seem to have come very firmly to the conclusion that this is the Jewish, so-called Son of Righteousness, who would arise. This is surely the Jewish Messiah. And we must find out more. Dissatisfied with their own religion and their ideas and their teaching, they gave up their comforts and their authority, whatever it amounted to, and they made that dangerous, hazardous journey to discover what this was all about. Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Herod was the Roman governor of Judea. He was not a Jew, although he often behaved as a Jew and tried to count himself as one. He was a very cunning man and a very cruel man. Great builder. Even built a temple for the Jews in Jerusalem. Behold, there came wise men, the Magi, from the east to Jerusalem. Verse 2 of chapter 2 saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? That's how far they'd got in their study of the Old Testament. 
There was a king of the Jews, a great deliverer expected. For we have seen his star in the east. They were convinced. Now people in more recent times have tried to figure out what this star was, what it may have been. And there are various theories and ideas, but nothing really works and comes within the period of the star of Bethlehem. Only by assuming that the record of the scripture is chaotic and inaccurate and misleading, and things were up to 70 years earlier or 90 years later, can you fit this miraculous star up with any known uh, heavenly appearance that might possibly match it or fit it. This is something unique and something special and something divine. And if you're a total materialist and you don't believe in God or heaven or spiritual things or anything beyond what you can see and touch and feel, then this will seem far-fetched to you because you've shut out the whole spiritual dimension. But this is a supernatural event, this star. But it's the thinking of the wise men that's so interesting. They're sure that this must denote the Jewish Messiah. So they came to Jerusalem. There were probably quite a party of them. The common assumption is that there were three simply because there were three types of gift mentioned. But it's likely there were rather more, that they moved as a whole group, and uh, they would have made a stir in Jerusalem. These foreign noblemen, dignitaries, scholar-priests. Verse 3, when Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled. Of course he was. What's this, king of the Jews? Is there going to be some sort of insurrection? Is there going to be trouble? Is there going to be difficulty in my region? And if Rome hears about it, I shall be recalled and demoted, and they'll send the troops. And the population of Jerusalem was deeply concerned for the same reason. This is going to greatly trouble us we can do without a Roman incursion and legions being sent to quell this movement, whatever it is, because the Roman authorities were very heavy-handed when anyone set himself up to take over power in any region. He was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and especially the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees, they would lose their comforts and their authority, and their position, and their racketeering. They were hypocrites. Verse 4, when Herod the king had gathered, he's called Herod the Great, but he certainly wasn't great, except in his building programs. When he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people, the Sanhedrin Council of the Jews, that sounds like the Council of Seventy, who ran all religious affairs in Judah. When he'd gathered them together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born, the expected Messiah. And they, verse 
5 accurately said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet. And then the Old Testament prophecy is quoted. And verse 7, then Herod, when he had privily called the wise men, inquired of them what time the star appeared, and they told him. And he sent them to Bethlehem. What cunning is this? He didn't send any of his troops. He didn't send an official inquiry. That would arouse suspicion, and they wouldn't get straight answers, possibly. That's what he thought. He'd send these dignitaries, these noblemen from afar, and let them do the work for him. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child, and when you have found him, bring me word again that I may come and worship him also. And as you know, his intention was to kill all the children in the region rather than to have someone growing up who would be regarded as the Messiah or the King. And verse 9, they depart and they see the star again. It looks as though they hadn't seen it since they left the east. They'd seen it there in the skies. They'd interpreted it. They'd come to the conclusion it must be the Jewish Messiah. They make the journey to Jerusalem, the natural place to go, seemingly without any star. But now it appears. And we read in verse 10, this is very significant, when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. This was a spiritual search on their part. This was not just a scholastic inquiry. They really, in earnest, wanted to know about the Messiah and, if possible, find him. They wanted to submit to him. They were convinced that their own religion was futile and they believed the Old Testament scriptures. So when they see it again, it's so reassuring that extravagant language is used in the Greek and they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. They couldn't have been happier. This is a spiritual search. Have you ever engaged in a spiritual search? Have you ever felt the futility of life without God for all its happy moments? What does it mean as a whole? What's it in aid of? Where's it going? What about the down times? Can you make head or tail of it? Can you explain it? Is there anything in human learning which helps you to understand who made you, what you're here for, what the future holds? Do you have any relationship with God, any help from on high? Have you never begun the spiritual search for God? These scholar priests had, and they'd come a long way in looking for the Messiah. And verse 11, then the encounter, the homage they pay. When they were come into the house, they saw the young child 
with Mary, his mother. I was mentioning this morning that this is after the scene in the stable, the day of Christ's birth, the visit of the shepherds. How long after, I don't know, but one theory is that it's just a little over 40 days after. And as I was mentioning, that's based on the fact that Mary was due to go and make sacrifice for her purification according to the old rites of the Jews. That was 40 days. And when she went up to Jerusalem to the temple to offer her sacrifice of purification, here's the significant thing, she offered the sacrifice that was prescribed for the desperately poor. Two pigeons, two turtle doves, not a lamb. She couldn't afford a lamb. She offered a poor sacrifice. But you see, when the Magi visited, they brought lavish gifts of gold, frankincense and myrrh. She didn't have that at the time she made the sacrifice. So according to this theory, they must have visited after her purification. Because up until their visit, the family was desperately poor. So it was afterwards, some say days, some say a week or two, but possibly 40 days. By this time, they've found lodging or a relative or someone with proper accommodation. And when they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down. They prostrated themselves on the ground, these noblemen, and worshipped him. He was God. He was a babe. But no, to them, he was the Messiah, the promised one in whom you had to trust, who would do the great deed that would take away sin for all those who trust in him by dying on a cross and bearing the punishment due. And he would purchase the right to forgive them. So they worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. But just think, what did this mean to Mary? And Joseph, come to that. What did it communicate to them? It's very interesting that these philosopher priests had come to search for the Jewish Messiah. They'd come to believe that there was only one God. They'd come to believe in the scriptures and the prophecies and the promises of a Messiah. Very interesting that they'd come to worship him and yield to him But what did it mean to Mary? Well, it meant this first and foremost, and this is rather obvious, but I shall mention two things this evening that it meant in particular. It meant to Mary that all learning and knowledge 
must bow to Christ. All human learning and knowledge must bow to Christ. It is inferior to the knowledge of Christ. However celebrated, however complex, now there were many things these scholar priests knew that have been vindicated. Their knowledge of astronomy was incredibly good. They had discovered many things and could measure many things in a remarkably sophisticated way. Many factors known in ancient science and in the literature of those days was very good. Some has been superseded. Much has not been superseded. I'm not talking about the religious notions which they gave up, but their knowledge. But whatever knowledge they had, it didn't get them to God. It didn't lead them to know God in a real and personal way. It didn't change their characters. It didn't change their lives. It didn't give them a place in heaven and a hope of heaven. There was, it didn't explain the creation of the world and why God has made it and sustained it. The eternal questions, the spiritual questions, all their astronomy and their philosophy couldn't answer. So while much of it was very good and very accomplished as far as this limited, finite, material world is concerned, it didn't reach to God and get you to him and tell you of him and disclose his purposes and relate you to him. Knowledge had to come a long way and bow at the feet of Christ, even as a babe. All knowledge is subordinate to the knowledge of God and the revelation of God in the Bible, the knowledge that God tells us about himself and what he's done for us and how Christ would come and did come and how he died on Calvary to atone for our sins and how we can seek him and repent and find him and walk with him and go to heaven. No human knowledge will tell you any of that. All that must come from God. And that's the first thing which must have struck Mary. And if he was there at that moment, Joseph, that these representatives of the highest intelligentsia were prostrates at the feet of Christ the Lord, even as a babe. And that's half the message of the Magi, the wise men. And it's true today. It doesn't matter how great our attainments, how profound our knowledge and extensive, how wonderful, it doesn't tell us one thing about why we're here, how to find God doesn't tell us anything spiritual. It bows to Christ and God. And the second thing that the visit of the Magi would have told Mary, and in due course, Joseph, and all others, was this, that all religion 
yields to Christ. All religion is the wrong direction that human instinct has taken. Because there is in every human being an instinct for God. But unfortunately, our fallen hearts immediately take that instinct and build our own God. A God that suits us, or gods that suit us. We don't want a holy God, so we create gods that let us do as we like. Gods that are rather like us. Not the true God, the holy God, the eternal God. So the trouble with the human race is our instinct for God becomes perverted by what we think God ought to be like. And we invent religions, 19 to the dozen. And we become superstitious and follow them. Even atheism is a religion followed with religious zeal by people who would rather have no God. So they worship nature or the earth or evolution or whatever. You can't avoid religion. We're made by God and have an instinct for him. That instinct is perverted. All religion must bow to the one true God and yield to him. These scholar-priests were also representatives of false religion. And they gave it up and surrendered to Christ and bowed to him. And they made this great discovery in all their thinking and in their seeking study of the Old Testament scriptures. They made this discovery that their religion and no humanly created religion has a redeemer, a saviour, God incarnate, God the creator who came into human flesh to be our representative and to suffer and to die to bear our sin. Because there's no other way man can be forgiven. God is so holy he must punish sin. And he can only forgive us by coming and taking the punishment himself. Only Christianity has a saviour come from God who died for men and women who trust in him. They'd come to see that isn't in earthly religions. There's only one religion that presents to you God who may be known by you in a personal way. And you may walk with him and pray to him and interact with him and have assurance that though you cannot see him, he is your God and your saviour and your friend. All man religions, the gods cannot be known. All bow to Christ, the only true faith. All earthly religions ultimately give you no purpose for living, no hope of heaven, 
So these two great principles, the visit of the Magi, what did it teach? All knowledge must bow to Christ. All religion, man-made, must bow to Christ. He's the only one to know and to save you and to bless you. One last thing, my time is up as we close. Look at the gifts. Verse 11, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Maybe they all gave all three gifts, however many of them there were. Maybe they apportioned them between them. If you're making a visit to somebody special and it's something you do once in a year, first time maybe in several years, you think, what should we take? What shall we give? What is appropriate? What is appropriate? Don't you think that was much in the mind of the Magi before they set out? We're going seeking the Messiah, the King of souls, the Saviour of souls, the promised one long prophesied through the Old Testament. What shall we take? What is appropriate? The things that they took are highly symbolical, not so much to us today, but in the world of those days. And among the countries of that time and their cultures, the gifts are very significant. We must take gold. Gold is appropriate for visiting a king. He is a king. The king of the Jews. The king of heaven. The creator and Lord. He is our king. We are going to yield to him. Yield our lives to him. So they took gold. Because they saw he was a king. They took frankincense. Now in the ancient world, not only in the temple of the true God, but among all the pagans, frankincense was used in worship. Incense was used. And frankincense is the best of them all in those days. So what did it mean? In the symbolism of those days, we must take frankincense, the best incense, because he's God. You come before God in the ancient world with incense, which denotes spirit. So they brought a gifts appropriate for a king, gifts appropriate for God. They believed that the babe born was a king and he was God. And then they took the myrrh. And what did that mean? Well, my first answer doesn't seem so hopeful, but listen carefully. You took myrrh to a funeral. 
because it covered the perfume, the aroma, the wonderful smell, covered the decomposition of the body. Well, why would you take myrrh? Because he's a man. He's a man who's come to die. So an appropriate gift for a man is this wonderful perfume. In that culture, in those days, they came to worship a king. God himself, and he was second person of the triune Godhead, and truly man to be our representative and our sin-bearer and take our sin for us if we trust in him. King, God, man, the Christ who was incarnate, the Christ of Calvary, the Christ who died for sinners, he'd come to do that. Those are the gifts that they gave. They knew what they were doing. They knew who they had come to believe in. And they yielded to him. And that we must all do. Or you'll never go to heaven. Or you'll never find God. Or you'll never find life. Unless you trust in Christ, the only Saviour, who came to die, your eternal King. Let's pray together. O God, our gracious Heavenly Father, look upon us all this night and draw us to Christ. Draw us to find him and to trust in him and to know him and love him. Lord, we praise and thank thee that Christ ever came, a redeemer for us. And we pray, Lord, that all may seek and find him. We ask it in his name for his sake. Amen.